this is Stonewall Jackson, Thomas Jonathan Jackson, um, based on a photograph of him that was done during the war. There are only two wartime photographs of him. We have one because of its fragility. We can only show it every so often, and unfortunately, you've missed it. Um, but this is a pretty nice, heroic 19th century posthumous portrait. Posthumous because, as you know, he died actually, um, we should have had this talk last week, um, on May 10th, um, 1863. When I was preparing for this talk, I was kind of bemused, and, and actually if somebody knows the answer or wants to kick in a, a response, I was wondering whether Americans have more nicknames than any other country. Um, it seems to me the fields that I know in terms of military history or politics and certainly sports, um, major American figures are known by their nicknames much more um, than they seem to be in, in, um, in Europe. And I, I think that there's a couple of, I'm going to just go with that. Let's assume I'm right, um, which I frequently do. You know, it's, I'm frequently wrong, but nonetheless. Um, and I think that the reason for that is kind of, inner, in, in speculating about it, is that the reason why Americans are in love with nicknames is because we're, in the truest sense that we're a democracy, we're popular. You have to, you, there's no inherited privilege, there's no rank, there's no, uh, there, 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 there's no established church, there's no established state, hierarchy, dynasties, royal or otherwise. Um, and I think that there are two things here. First of all, I think there's the element of by making a nickname you somehow humanize people, but it's also a way in which, in a curious sense, Americans are always fashioning themselves. They're always kind of creating an identity through their work and their lives and their events. You know, and then they get, if they're, if they're charismatic enough, they get, they get a, a, a name assigned to them. You know, the, Babe Ruth is both Babe Ruth and the Sultan of Swat. Stonewall Jackson becomes Stonewall Jackson. Um, Pershing becomes Blackjack Pershing. Um, you have old blood and guts. I mean, imagine a French president who was named, you know, Old Fuss and Feathers or Old Rough and Ready. But these became names, and particularly because there was an intersection between politics and the military, they became names by which you were known to the public. But the other thing was it humanized people, and Stonewall Jackson is a good example of that. On the one hand, his nickname, it's probably, it's one of the greatest nicknames of all time, Stonewall Jackson. I mean, they're very, you know, there's no hesitancy or no, no, problem in determining exactly what his attributes were. But it was also because he did have a, a, a peculiar relationship in a way that I want to get to with his men, with the Confederacy, and with the South and the past, as we've, we've in some senses romanticized it. It provides a way of humanizing him. It provides a way of approaching a man who in many ways was distant and difficult. Um, it is, as I say, one of the greatest nicknames, and he, he earned it July 21st. 1861 at the Battle of Bull Run. Jackson had, a, as I, I knew of his military career, but didn't know that much about his personal life and career when I examined, when I started thinking about this talk. And, he's a, and, and this notion of self-creation, of being self-made, of having a nickname that was applied to you, Jackson himself in a large sense, uh, created himself. I mean, and, and I'm, I'm intrigued as a biographer. He, he gave himself the middle name Jonathan, Thomas Jonathan Jackson. He was virtually an orphan. His parents died when he was eight. He was raised by an uncle in Clarksville, Virginia, now West Virginia, kind of in the mountainous region, out of the way. Um, he was a lonely boy. He had a, one sister who he loved deeply, and they later tragically split over the question of the union. He was an indifferent student in part because he had very little opportunities. 
he was a kind of strange, solitary boy. Um, and you kind of wonder, as I always do as an historian, you know, what was it like in the 1830s, 1840s, growing up in the near wilderness? And what, what did you think your prospects were? Where did you think you would go when so many people died in infancy? So many people never made it out of the local community. And it, Jackson got, again, a, you know, in the, in the American uh, genre of, of, of autobiography, he got lucky. Um, he, he somehow, and it's, a, it's the great providential story that he wanted, he, he saw the military academy, which was at the time outside of sort of Harvard and Yale, the major established university, of, particularly of practical education that they taught engineering. And West Point engineers were really um, at the top of the field. And Jackson didn't get into West Point. You had to be appointed and some other guy got in and then got to West Point and realized, oh, God, I hate this, and left, but within enough time for Jackson quickly to use whatever little influence he had locally and get himself appointed. He's a young man, 18, going off to West Point, uh, leaving Virginia for the first time, you know, not, not even having a family to leave, but having this place. Jackson was a, was a terrible student uh, initially, and it's the initially that's important because Jackson, he, he had extra large feet. He always walked with a kind of sense that he was pushing against a strong wind. He was practically uncommunicative. He rarely spoke. He said himself, preternaturally shy, that he, don't, he don't, didn't believe that he'd spoken to a woman the entire time that he was spent at West Point. And that was a, he was in the class of 1846, which was a notoriously hard-drinking, hard-partying class with people like Pickett and others in it. And he just put his nose to the grindstone, set himself the task, and every year that he was at West Point, he improved his class ranking to ultimately graduating 17th, and the, and the story was that if they'd had another year, he would have finished first, beating out such luminaries as George McClellan, his future adversary. Um, he was a dogged, persistent, kind of straight-ahead guy, and I'm, and I'm reminded there's a great story about U.S. Grant, his near contemporary at West Point, who, who again led this kind of difficult, checkered, indifferent life, and that somebody said of Grant that he, remind, he always looks to me like the expression on his face is that he's about to just set his jaw and run through a stone wall, or a brick wall, or in that case, uh, no pun intended, but that but that's the same characteristic of Grant, of Grant and Jackson, of people who really weren't sure how their lives were going to turn out, but were going to try and do the best they could just to, just to succeed. And Jackson, and this is the curious element with him, he succeeds at war. And it's a hard thing to say. We like to think of ourselves as a peace-loving country, peace-loving people, where war is a last resort. And Robert E. Lee, of course, in many ways epitomizes that as the reluctant skillful genius, but a reluctant warrior. Jackson is mustered out as a second lieutenant. He goes to the war. The war in Mexico is broken out. He goes to Mexico and he thrives. Here is somebody who in many ways, he comes alive on the battlefield. And he rises, he, by, the, by the end of the Mexican War, he's a breveted uh, major. He makes the biggest leap of, in, in terms of rank of anybody in the U.S. Army. And not only does he succeed because he's in the army, he succeeds because he's a he's a fighter, he's a killer. Um, he 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 earns he earns Winthrop Winthrop Scott's personal acclamation because at one point he's under heavy fire on a road outside of Chapultepec, 
and he, Jackson refuses, he disobeys in order to withdraw, unlimbers his can and essentially uses them as large shotguns and chases the Mexican army down the road loading up, the, loading up his two twin cannons. He had trained as an artillery man at West Point um, and chases with, it, with this under heavy fire um, and wins the admiration and the day. Um, after that, what do you do? The peacetime army, whatever was going on sectionally in terms of the division between North and South, you're in what's now called the Old Army. You have an engineering background. Jackson kind of kicked around a couple of, camp, a couple of camps in, in Florida and New York. And here he reveals another aspect of his character. In addition to being very dogged and persistent, he had an incredible sense of self, which again I'd suggest contributes to his ability as a warrior. And to be blunt about it, like your next door neighbor who's always suing you, Andrew, Thomas Jackson is, has difficulties with virtually every commander and a great many of his subordinates. He's always putting people on charges. He's always quarreling with them. He believes that he's right. He has a whole series of disputes. He's fractious. He's having has trouble adjusting to other people's authority. Again, this notion of push and pull between the structure of the military and his own ambitions and his own sense of his self-worth, which is highly developed. So he, what happens to him, fortunately probably, because he's involved in a really nasty court-martial, joint court-martial disciplinary case with his officers, his particular bet noir, he gets offered the job of, 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 of optics and physics at VMI, essentially natural sciences, which encompass just about everything. And he resigns from the Army and spends the next year at the Virginia Military Institute in Lexington, at which he is by all odds the worst teacher in the history of probably English-speaking world. He's a horrendous teacher. And it's even been, again, this sense of uncommunicativeness, the inability to, to, to be flexible, the inability to, to lead through, you know, good graces, all the 19th century attributes that you were supposed to have, this doggedness. Um, and, it's, and, and because, again, we, we know what happened to him. He becomes a martyr to the South. He's the, probably one of the greatest combat, or is one of the greatest combat generals in American history. Um, and so you can kind of, you, you, you see how it all turned out, and it looks, you know, it turns out okay. And it's kind of amusing that his, his students used to throw spitballs at him, where one of them had a water pistol and would frequently sneak behind outside the classroom and shoot him in the back with a water pistol, or that when he was running an artillery exercise, they would, the, the, the students would unloosen the wheels, so Jackson would order the, the artillery case on to fly across the plane, and the wheels would go flying off, and Jackson would go, because he was totally humorless, would look at this and go, well, how did that happen, and set about doing it. But he, he apparently was legitimately an awful teacher. Um, there's no sugarcoating it. Um, at, at one point, alumni and staff are thinking about firing him, and they, but they don't, and he, he again, perseveres. He's, you know, he's considered a, a kind of a fool. I mean, I think most of us have been to educational institutions where you, there's one professor who's just sort of out of it, and he, Jackson seems to be that guy. And again, though, he perseveres at it. Um, what he does during these years that's also interesting in terms of his doggedness is that he, just, he gets religion. Whatever is important to him, whatever was missing in his life, the absence of family, he went through an incredible lengthy search for a religious home. When he's in Mexico, he has discussions with a priest about becoming Catholic, joining the Catholic Church, um, what would have, and he actually, I think he went to some catechism classes. 
But in the middle 40s, he, he becomes a Presbyterian. He's essentially born again as part of the Second Great Awakening, the aftermath of that. And he becomes incredibly devout, uh, literally to the point where he would not pen a letter. He would not mail a letter if he thought that the, mail would be, the letter would be in the mail on Sunday. That he, it would, so the mail, his representation would be traveling on Sunday. He, again, tried to keep the Sabbath. Um, he was reluctant. He didn't like fighting on Sunday or marching on Sunday, but he, he, would, he would. But this notion, again, in America, this, this sense that I think we've lost in America is a place of isolation, of distance, of great hardship, um, being, being literally and figuratively and, and emotionally saved by his devout religious life. He marries once. He finally does talk to a woman, uh, falls in love with a Presbyterian minister's daughter, and again... Um, being Thomas Jonathan Jackson, what happens? She dies in childbirth with a stillborn child. He remarries within three years again uh, to another Presbyterian minister's daughter, and that marriage is, is lasting, and they have a daughter. Um, so Jackson's eking out this existence, uh, holding on, like most a lot of unpopular tenured faculty, at VMI, and what happens? The Civil War breaks out, which again personally saves him and makes him, because again, this element of the man who's, who's essentially somnolent. Um, Jackson has this peculiar habit. He, has, he, he was a hypochondriac to the nth degree in a, in a century that was obsessed with, with personal health. Uh, he, he constantly was going to springs, and, including Saratoga, the most famous, having his whole system irrigated. Um, the, the famous story about how he went into battle eating a lemon it isn't quite true. I mean, he, he, what, what he did, because I suspect he was, to be blunt about it, I'm sorry, it's before your dinner, he's completely blocked up. Um, he ate fruit as often as he could get it. If, again, you think about the 19th century diet, which was heavy on salt pork and five-day-old bread, um, that Jackson, because of his natural, and then his natural concern, uh, almost comical obsession with his, belt, his health, um, is eating fruit all the time, not just lemons. He also was convinced that his body's internal organs were completely out of whack. They were out of balance, which is, again, the famous story that he would ride in a battle with his hand in the air. Well, he didn't just ride in a battle. He frequently, and at odd moments, which is, again, why the students at VMI used to throw paper airplanes at him, was he would, he would go into these elaborate jerks because he was convinced that his body's internal organs, let alone the muscles in his arms, were completely out of whack. So he would, like go like this and, 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 and try and realign himself in a kind of self-chiropractory. So you have this person who's, an, who's, a, who's this queer duck, except when it comes to the battlefield. And the war breaks out. He, well, again, we, the, the, the rumors of war, he led a delegation of, of VMI students to protect their, at the hanging of John Brown at, at Charleston. Um, an incredible cavalcade, actually, of coincidences, because Jackson was there. Robert E. Lee commanded the whole, the entire hanging. Um, Jeb Stewart was also there, and I've just learned that, that the future assassin and, and actor, John Wilkes Booth, pre hit himself in one of the other military units and witnessed John Brown's execution. Jackson is something of a nobody. He knows where, he has a little bit of political patronage from um, from his marriage, and, and he had come to notice of Robert E. Lee at the Mexican War. And Lee appoints, Lee 
provides him with a little bit of patronage that Jackson needs to show his talents. The war breaks out. Jackson is given a small army in the, in, in the Shenandoah. The Shenandoah is very important throughout the entire war because it led away from Richmond for the north, and it led toward the north for the south. It was also, as they say, the breadbasket of the Confederacy, or at least the upper Confederacy, in terms of the importance of foodstuffs and, 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 and um, fodder for horses and all the rest of it. So the, the notion constantly was that the, the north had to block it so that the south couldn't invade the north. And by the same token, the south had to, had to occupy it to maintain its... Um, its, its breadbasket, but also it was a diversion uh, because they could invade the North, uh, the, the North, the North had to pay attention to it. So, so um, Jackson makes his bones uh, in 1861-62 with what becomes his, his strangely divided legacy as a military leader, um, which is an incredible series of very fast strikes, almost like a boxer. If you think about Muhammad Ali, somebody who, 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 who trades size um, for speed. And he defeats in rapid succession a whole series of lesser Union commands. He has the advantage of having a, it's a small army, but he's fighting a divided command. Jackson's first in bat battle at Kernstown, he loses. It's the only battle he ever lost. But while it was a tactical loss and a relatively small engagement, it was a strategic success because his very presence in the valley scared the bejesus out of the high command, the Union high command in Washington, and they diverted a lot of troops into the valley to deal with Jackson. Jackson, of course, gets his nickname, and those of you who have the chance to go out to the battlefield at Manassas can see the wonderfully muscular uh, horse and, and rider Stonewall Jackson at the top of Henry Hill, where Jackson, um, as the, the war really heats up from these small engagements into a, into a major uh, where people began to realize that it wasn't going to just be on to Richmond. Um, the, the, the first Battle of Bull Run, first Manassas, in which Jackson gets his name um, from the South Carolina general. The, the Confederacy has been driven back from its initial, the Union is winning the first part of the battle and is being driven back up the, Confederates are retreating up the hill. Um, ironically, the, the Union forces them into a position of defensive power by which the Confederacy can then win the battle. Um, and Bernard B. of South Carolina in the, in the routes yells, there stands Jackson like a stonewall rally to the Virginians. Now, the curious thing about that is Bernard B. was shot dead about 10 minutes after saying that. Um, there is some suggestion that what he meant was, there's, the, there's that damn Jackson standing like a stonewall. Gee, you know, he come and help. You know, it's like rally to the Virginians because we have no choice. In other words, Jackson hadn't fully engaged on the battlefield. By circumstance, he had come up late and was on top of the hill and hadn't been deployed. Um, I'm not sure that that's true because it sounds like the heroic thing that Bernard B., who was, you know, in his, in, in, kind of embodying the chivalry of the Old South, it was a, a rallying call. But nonetheless, it's been raised, which gets to the whole problem of subsequent re um, reputation. So Jackson gets this nickname. He's the hero of the battle. Um, he's then, to, to, to cut through this a little bit more quickly, he's given detached command again um, as Johnston is replaced by Lee, he's sent back to the valley, now facing a still divided but larger Union army. And this is where he, having made his bones in 1861-62, now later in 62, um, he really makes his reputation as with the opposite of his name. Instead of Stonewall standing, he, in a series of incredible marches, 
Jackson's so-called foot cavalry, his infantry, a small outnumbered force of, of Confederate troops. Uh, they, they marched, and during the campaign, they marched roughly 680 miles in roughly 45 days, winning three to five, depending on how you count major engagements, which ultimately eject um, all Union troops from the valley until very late in the war. Jackson then follows that up by, in the campaigning, um, moving, I'm, I'm losing track of my campaigns. Um, he, what happens to him then is, and this is his signal failure, he gets, having ejected the Union, um, Lee sends him to the Seven Days, the, what became the Battles of the Seven Days, when McClellan tried to invade up the neck Instead of attracting, Jack, McClellan was always one for doing something in a roundabout way. So instead of going directly to, to Richmond, he went down uh, the, the coast and goes up the neck through you know, Williamsburg towards the back door of Richmond. And this is where the puzzling element of Jackson. Jackson now, he's under Lee's command instead of operating in an independent command. And his performance on the seven days is very lethargic. Um, he, it's the one time where he really doesn't perform up to snuff. Um, he's, he seems to be exhausted. He's um, out of it a lot of times. He, re, he takes a kind of literal reading of the, of the orders, which are, are Lee's orders were always um, left a lot of leeway for subordinates to follow, and Jackson doesn't do anything. He kind of sits around. Um, there's been some suggestion, the, the favorite disease right now of, of people, it used to be manic depression, and the favorite disease now of historians is Asperger's syndrome, which is where there's an element of obsessiveness, um, sleep, sleep problems, but also the ability of kind of monomaniacal fascin you know, fascination or fixing on something. And so now it's become a kind of, and I'm, I'm skeptical about it, but there's been a suggestion of that, that Jackson may have had Asperger's syndrome, and it would explain things like his unsociability, his, the fact that he had to teach from the textbook and couldn't stand alternatives. But it doesn't account, and, and it would account for his lethargic pro progress on the seven days, but it doesn't account really for the rest of his career, except if you throw in the fact that the battle energized him, that the battle somehow brought him alive, which it did as he followed up this lethargic performance with a really masterful alternating speed. In the, again, Jackson's career shows this alternation between his nickname, which is he stands solid like a stone wall, and then his incredible speed of movement, his speed of thought. He goes back um, does this incredible long route march around John Pope's army, um, encounters, draws Pope into the battle at Second Manassas, the same field except on a different axis, traps Pope there, and, and, and very skillfully fights a defensive battle for the first day of Second Manassas until Longstreet, who was, who was his equivalent as a general and later his his, his nemesis in some ways in terms of reputation. Longstreet then comes up on the second day and, they dis, and, and the Confederacy destroys uh, Pope's army. Um, McClellan still trapped in retreat, pouting in his tent, unwilling to come to Pope's aid. And that paves the way for the first invasion of the North at Antietam, where again, um, Jackson, America's bloodiest day, Jackson holds the left of Lee's um, line and bears the brunt of the first attack of Hooker across the wheat field, and the, I'm sorry, the cornfield, whereas somebody said when, when the attack, the first moment of the attack, it was as if the landscape turned red. 
um, and Jackson, again, fighting to the north of the Dunker Church, the famous landscape there, the landscape of death, and so many of those photographs by Alexander Gardner, again, fights masterfully in the defensive. Um, Lee, it's a drawn battle. Lee retreats, um, and the winter engagement occurs along the Rappahannock, and the, and, and, um, the battle of um, McClellan is finally relieved. Burnside is put in his place and comes up with the over-aggressive plan to attack the Confederacy through the town of Fredericksburg, which is, those of you who've enjoyed an afternoon in Fredericksburg, you look at that and go, what were you thinking? I mean, you really have to say, what are you thinking? I mean, you're dealing with armies of 110,000 people going, attacking across a river, through a town, up Marie's Heights, um, where, again, it was a slaughter pen. Jackson is not at Marie's Heights, which is where most of the most famous feature of the battle field, but, but further down to the right in a landscape that, that, that's very moving still because it's this kind of low flatland. And Jackson, again, very skillfully handles the defensive position. This is in the winter and, and early years of 63. Jackson then gets a little respite after the Battle of Fredericksburg, partly because the, the, the Union has been bled white. And he actually gets to see for the first time his daughter, and um, his wife comes to visit him, and he writes his reports. In the meantime, he's also putting everybody he can up on charges. Uh, I mean, he feuded. He had, he had now become a, an army leader, and he lost the Stonewall Division, and it was being run by a man named Dick Garnett, um, who Jackson hated and was constantly feuding with and had him up on charges. He's put Maxie Gregg, the South Carolinian cavalry leader, up on charges, and you know, his life, Maxie Gregg gets killed, um, I forget at which battle, and, and Jackson says, you know, I really want you to, as you're, they tell me that you're dying, so, you know, I really want you to forget about the court-martial and go to your Lord with a clean conscience, which is, you know, A, an indicative of his kind of straightforward religiosity, his well-meaningness, and actually, Jack, Maxie Gregg responds quite, quite generously. But then, so you're at the situation where, where, where Jackson really is the striking arm, they were the one in a series of fairly flamboyant characters, Jackson is the one man that Lee has come to rely on, and he relies on him at the kind of tragic apogee of, of the whole story of Thomas Stonewall Jackson, which is the Battle of Chancellorsville, again, roughly west of Fredericksburg. Lee is, at this point, outnumbered 110,000 to about 35,000. Um, constantly, the Union is constantly underestimating uh, or overestimating how many Confederates in the field, but it's a very small army. Um, and um, Burnside gets replaced by Hooker, who, who, uh, who Jackson had already met in Antietam. And Hooker actually concocts a very good plan to hold um, Lee and Jackson and Longstreet in position and then move or, and then flank him, draw him out of Fredericksburg, cut him in half, and, and defeat them in detail. Except that what happens, it's almost like a game of leapfrog where Hooker moves them out and then, and looks to be winning the battle, sends a very optimistic um, telegram back to Lincoln. And then what happens is the famous last act of, of, of Stonewall Jackson's life where through local knowledge they find this small back road that goes around to the, to the right side of the, what the Union Army they discover. In fact, it's one of Lee's relatives, Fitzhugh Lee, who discovers that the Union Army is, as they say, in the air on the right flank, that the flank hasn't been refused. It's, it's like this instead of like that, so there's no protection. 
So late, early in the morning, Jackson moves 12 to 15,000. Uh, across the face, this incredibly risky move where Lee divides, having already divided his army, he divides it again, sends Jackson down this small lane with local guides through the kind of, it's a, you can still take the, you can still drive it. It's, it's, it's fairly unbelievable that they could do this. Uh, unnoticed, the Confederacy, when they're spotted by the Union, they, it, the assumption is they're retreating, so nobody pays much attention. Again, this notion of believing what you want to believe in military history. They come around, and, and late in the day, Jackson is in position. He waits for the final moment, tells his subordinates, you can move forward now. And the first intimation that the Union has that the Confederates are on their right is the, is, is the game, deer, birds, partridges, rabbits, um, snake, everything starts running through their camp. And at first they're sort of amused, and then there's the famous rebel yell as in a line, 12 to 15, 12,000 of Jackson's men pour down on the flank of, of, of the Union and, and roll them all the way back to the Chancellorsville Courthouse, which was Hooker's headquarters. Effectively, not winning the battle, but demoralizing, again, like a left hook delivered at speed, um, demoralizing them so that Hooker would retreat the following day. And the coda to all this, of course, is that late at night, Jackson going forward on the plank road to reconnoiter um, is a victim of friendly fire, that the um, North Carolina troops, seeing this large party of horsemen fire and nervous, fire at the party. Jackson takes a bullet in his arm, his shoulder, loses. Um, at first, it doesn't seem that the wound is too serious, that Lee sends his personal physician, or the Army physician, Dr. McGuire, to treat him. And it seems like he's at least making a recovery, but pneumonia sets in and he dies. The arm is amputated. His, his wife comes to see him on his deathbed. And Jackson, who in many ways seems to me to be so incommunicative and so difficult to understand, the strange oscillation between his, his just weirdness as a person and his ability as tactical genius and as a general. At the last moment in his life, whether he was thinking about the springs of the river where he grew up in southwestern Virginia, he leaves us, I think, with probably the greatest, the man, great nickname. He leaves us with, I think, the most poetic uh, last words of any of, in, in history would let us cross over the river and rest in the shade of the trees. And he dies. Thank you. <laughs>